That's true, right? How much God loves us. And uh, so many different ways in our lives in this world that he shows us that he loves us. One is we get to gather together and be together and worship him together. That's a great gift that he gives to us. Sometimes he just lets us have good time, like on a weekend, right? Anybody do anything good on, a week- on the weekend yesterday, on Saturday? Yeah? Hey, tell me what you did. Tell me, tell me what you did yesterday. Go ahead, all, all together. Sounds like a very confusing day that you had. So. All right, why don't you go ahead and have a seat, please. Glad you're here today. Glad you guys in the family room are with us. So I want to say hello to you and good morning. Glad you're here next door in the block. So good to see you there. Uh, let's see. So last weekend we talked about our vision for the year and where we're heading and we're at the idea that um, a follower of Jesus is one who lives a well-crafted life uh, according to the pattern that Jesus laid out for us. And we said there's five crafts that we want to help us all focus on uh, or to pick one of those crafts and go, I'm going to focus on this craft which will shape my life as a well-crafted life. And I'll tell, I'll tell you more about those in a little bit, but um, the craft that I've chosen for my own spiritual journey this year is the craft of prayer. I'm trying to grow in my praying, grow in my prayer, connection with God, those kinds of things. And, and some of you also have chosen that craft for yourself for this year. And I thought, maybe I'll just lead you in a prayer today before we look into Scripture. And through the prayer, just kind of set a pattern for you that may be helpful to you as you're praying to God and you're talking to Him on your own. So there's this prayer, ancient prayer, that Jesus gave to His disciples uh, one time when they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And so He said, oh, okay, here's how to pray. And so He gave them what, what is called the Lord's Prayer. Some of you know this one, right? Yeah, I mean, if you grew up in church, like, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. And sometimes when people pray that, it seems like the whole goal of the prayer is to get done. Like, the faster you get done, the better off you are. And it's kind of like eating spinach, you know. Don't, don't linger over it. Just get it down, you know. And that's not what this prayer was for. In fact, Jesus kind of expressly said, away from that. It's like, don't just use this in a mindless repetition way. Engage in it. Let your thoughts engage in it. So we really gave it to us as a pattern of how do we approach our Father. So what I want to do today is pray for us together. And I want to pray through the pattern of the Lord's Prayer. And as I do this, maybe especially if your craft for the year is prayer that you've chosen to focus on, maybe this will give you one way to sharpen up your prayer life. All right, so with that in mind, let's pray to the Lord together. Our Father, we're grateful to you that you are in heaven. We're grateful that you have this life that exists apart from this world. You are not distracted by it. You're not... uh, uh, worried about it. I'm not that you're not concerned, but you, but you are in heaven. And so thank you for that. We worship you together because you are holy, holy, holy. We want your name to be hallowed, to be treated as holy among us. In fact, my prayer, Lord, is that we would trust you enough to honor you as holy in our lives every day. Not just on the weekend when we come together to church, but every day that we would trust you enough to honor you as holy. And Father, we pray that your kingdom would come right among us, right now among us. And someday we want you to send your son Jesus back, but right now we want your kingdom to come among us, right in our homes, in our workplaces, in the group of people you've put right around us, kind of in the front row of our lives we, that we call an oikos. We want you to come right into that with your kingdom. And we want you to reign. We want you to be in charge in our lives. And Lord, we want to be people that bring your kingdom to our neighbors. 
And we pray that your will would be done in us just like it's done in heaven. Quickly, cheerfully, completely. We're not asking, Lord, that you do your will. We're asking that we would do your will. That we would be obedient to you and faithful to you. And sometimes we struggle with that. So may your will be done through us. And Lord, give us today what we need. Our daily bread. Lord, meet those needs. I don't know everyone's financial situation, but surely there are people among us who are struggling with their finances. Maybe it's because of bad choices they've made in the past. Maybe they got under a pile of debt and it's hard to get out and that has implications. Or maybe it's because they just lost their job or they lost it six months ago or a year ago and it's hard for them. Or Lord, maybe, maybe we have all that we need, but we still need to ask you for our daily bread because we acknowledge that it comes from you not from someone who writes us a paycheck. So give us what we need today. And Lord, not just for our families, but also for our church. Give the church what we need to be able to carry out the ministry that you have for us in this region. And do, oh, and forgive us our debts. We have debts to you. We know that you sent Jesus to, to cover those, to pay for those. We pray today for forgiveness, for cleansing, and for renewal. And Lord, we, we pray the same thing for those who have debts with us, people who have offended us, people maybe that we need to forgive also in our lives. So as we ask you for forgiveness, we commit to you to forgive others around us. And Lord, don't lead us into temptation. We can find it all by ourselves. Lord, the, the enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And I, I just pray that you'll cage him up. Why should he have free reign in our lives? Why should he have free reign in our families? Why should he have free reign in this region? I pray that you'll cage him up and protect us from the evil one so that we will not stumble into temptation because our desire is to treat you as holy, holy, holy every day of our lives. And we ask for that today. And Lord, as we turn to your scripture and we look to your scripture, teach us, reveal yourself to us, and make us like Christ. Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's look at scripture together. We're going to look in Romans chapter 12 today. If you want to start finding that, uh, you can do that. So... Um, let me just ask you a question as we, as we begin the process of, of considering the scripture that God has for us today. Do you have anybody in your life that you know always wants nothing for you but good? Because you probably have people in your life, you probably have one or two people in your life or something, you know, it's like, you know, when everything's going good, they're with you, but every now and then they want something or they need something from you, and so it's not necessarily for your good, but for their good. You have those people, I'm sure, because... We're surrounded by people like that because a lot of us are people like that. But do you have anybody in your life, do you have this gift that you have anybody in your life who you know wants nothing but good for you all the time? And if you had a person like that in your life, how would that affect your relationship with that person? What kind of relationship would you have with that person? How, wouldn't you thrive in that relationship? It would be such a beautiful thing if someone treated you like that all the time. They only wanted your good, even if it cost them 
They only wanted that all the time. Wouldn't that be amazing? Now, what would happen if you could learn that God was like that? That God was that person? That he only wanted good for you all the time? What would that do? If you could think of God that way, if you could understand God that way, what would that do to your relationship with God? Wouldn't you thrive in that kind of a relationship with God? So about six months ago, back at Easter, we started a series going through Paul's letter to the Romans. We call it the Book of Romans. It's actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church, a little church in the city of Rome 2,000 years ago. And he wrote this letter because he wanted those people to understand this. God's will for you is only good all the time. That doesn't mean that everything that happens in your life is always good or always feels good. I bet you had something that happened in your life this week that didn't feel good. Don't raise your hand. Because we all know. I mean, that, you know, have you, have you had a morning that you got away with just, it was all good and, feel, and felt good all the time? Maybe every now and then, right? But here's the deal. Paul writes this letter and he wants us to know God's will for us is only good all the time what he wants for us. Now, his definition of good might be different than yours. His definition is to form you into the image and likeness of Christ. Sometimes that takes sandpaper in your life. Sometimes it takes hard spots in your life. But God wants good for you. And that's what the letter to the Romans was about. So today we're going to come back to that book and we're going to, we're going to begin the process of finishing this whole series. Before we get to Thanksgiving, we'll wrap up the rest of the book of Romans. But I want you to understand some things Uh, from where we're heading today. So like when Paul wrote this letter, uh, he writes it to a church, and the church was not without problems. In fact, if you think about the ancient Rome where the people lived to receive this letter in the first place, they lived in a really nasty, weird political system. I'll wait for that to sink in. Have you ever seen a nasty, weird political system in action? It's like you'd think after 2,000 years we'd figure out how not to do this. Their system was worse. You think it's bad today? You think it's bad? Their system was worse. At least we get to choose between the lesser of two evils. They just got evil. They just got an emperor and almost all the time they were evil. They didn't give give Christ followers freedoms like you and I have to be able to worship Christ, to follow Christ. They didn't have that. It was a tough time for them. That's the people to whom Paul wrote this letter in Rome. And in their society, and even in their church, they had racial and ethnic tension. Paul addressed it. He goes, hey, you you know, in their case, it wasn't black and white. It was Jew and Gentile, but the stress was similar. The conflicts were often similar to what we see today. He goes, I got to write this letter to you so that you know that God's will for you is only good all the time. Good for you you. That's what he's trying to describe for them as he writes this letter. Now for the last uh, year or so, we've been uh, working with a rallying cry. It's something we want to engage our church with. We we call it uh, find the pain, be the hope. The whole statement says the pain is in the family. The hope is in the church. I have two problems with that phrase, the first part and the second part. The pain is in the family. Well, that That's true. 
if you have more than one person living in a household, or you have more than one person in a family, it's like, well, there's going to be pain because there's more than one of you. It just happens, right? But then I look at that and I go, well, wait, wait. We sometimes call the church the family of God. It's my church family. Oh, well, if it's a church family, well, that means there's pain in the church too. And then I go, wait, if there's pain in the church, how is it possible for the church to be the hope of the world? And anyway, I thought Jesus was the hope of the world, so how could the church be the hope of the world? Well, I fully believe that Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. There is no other. There is no other hope. A politician won't find more hope. An economist won't find more hope. An athlete won't find more hope for you. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Now, look around. Go ahead. I'll wait. You guys in the family room, go ahead, look around. Did you see Jesus? Now, if you're theologically thinking, you go, yeah, I saw him. He's right next to me. She's right next to me. Because Jesus says, you can look into one another and you'll see me there. Whatever you do for the least of these, you've done for me. Jesus is right there. In fact, when Jesus commissioned this thing called church, he commissioned us to be the body of Christ. The world will never see Jesus in a body in this life unless they see him through you. The church of Jesus is the body of Christ. That calls us to be the hope of the world. Jesus told his disciples, I am the light of the world. And then he told his disciples, you are the light of the world. And light is always associated with hope. So sure, there's pain in our life. And here's the trick. It's like there's pain in my life, and yet I'm called to bring hope to the world in the name of Christ. And this year, our focus is to say, How do we do that? It's one thing to find the pain. It's another thing to be the hope. How do I do that? As we begin the journey to uh, wrap up Paul's letter to the Romans, I want to help us do that. I want you to understand that a follower of Jesus lives a well-crafted life. Not always, but by choice, but by decision. We go, look, I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm going to live a well-crafted life. Jesus said to his disciples, you go and make disciples. You go and make something. You go and craft others to be disciples of Jesus. That's what he calls us to be. So I'm going to craft my life to be a follower of Jesus. I want to help you craft your life to be a follower of Jesus. I want you to live a well-crafted life in the name of Jesus. A well-crafted life thrives in its relationship with God. And Paul describes that for us in Romans chapter 12. So if you have a copy of the Bible with you, I'd love to have you open it up. To Romans 12. If you've got uh, your smartphone, you've got the YouVersion Bible app on there, you can uh, pull that out and, and uh, go, go to the section that's like other, and then uh, go to the events, and then you'll find Lakeside Church on the events page there. And we've got some notes for you there if you like. Let me read for you Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Here's what Paul says. Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters... In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, this is your true and proper worship. Don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. 
All right, let's just stop there for a second. A well-crafted life begins by knowing that God's will is good for you all the time. And it's about God's will. So I, he, he's like, you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. And so I want to help us with that. A well-crafted life engages God's will in four different ways. And if you're looking through Scripture, you might go, well, I, I find 13 ways. I'm like, okay, there, maybe there's 13 ways. But in this passage, I find four. Four different ways that he says, I want you to engage with God's will so that you live a well-crafted life. Number one, a well-crafted life engages God's will spiritually. And I know some of you are about to check out because you go, of course it's spiritual. That's not even a hard one. We're in church. It has to be spiritual. Okay, well, let me just show you what that means and, and describe how this works for us. Paul says, therefore, I urge you by God's mercy... To do something. Let's just start with that phrase. He goes, therefore, which looks back to everything he's already written. Maybe it looks back to the things he just wrote in the paragraph before, but I think in this case it looks back all the way back through his whole letter, through 11 chapters. Everything he's written, he wants to wrap up now that we get to chapter 12 and the following chapters where everything becomes really practical in the book of Romans. Like, here's where the rubber meets the road for you. He goes, therefore, I'm like, okay, well, if it's therefore, we should go back and just remember what Romans is about. Because how many of you remember everything I've said through the book of Romans so far? He knew it. All right, so let me go back and give you a quick summary of the book of Romans. Chapter 1 through 3, sin. Stop it. Actually, it's just sin. He goes, all of us have sinned. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Sin just means, you know, you, you set yourself up to be God instead of him being God, and that didn't work out so well. That's called sin. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are about the fact that God sent Jesus into the world to rescue you from the problem of sin. He calls it justification. He, he justifies us. He makes it just like we had never sinned. That's amazing. And it's all, it all happens through Jesus. It's not because of anything you did. It's not because of who you are. It's not because you're so tall. Because who cares about that stuff? And it's not because you're so pretty or so handsome. Because who cares about that stuff either? And it's not because you're so smart. It's not anything that you've done. It's what Christ has done for you. He justified us. So you had sin. Jesus redeemed you from that. Then chapter 7 says sin is a mugger. Sin is a terrorist. And it sneaks up on you and it trips you up. And you fall into it again. Even though you've been redeemed. It's so frustrating. But then chapter 8 says, but even when that happens, there is no condemnation for those of you who are in Christ Jesus. You are not condemned because sin mugged you again. And then chapters 9 through 11 talk about the Jews and the Gentiles and how do they get along and how do they do leadership in their church and how do they live out this mercy that God gave to them in their lives to redeem them. And then he ends up chapter 11 in verse 30. He makes this statement and look for the mercy because remember in, in chapter 12 he says, therefore, because of all this stuff that happened, I urge you in view of God's mercy. Here's the spiritual piece of this. Verse 30, chapter 11, just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So he's talking to the Gentile Christians. He goes, you Gentiles received mercy because the Jews were disobedient. And then he goes on, verse 31, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Mercy, mercy, mercy. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. If you are ever going to engage God well, if you are ever going to live a well-crafted life, you must begin to grasp this. The heart of God overflows with mercy. The heart of God overflows with mercy. Mercy, mercy, mercy. And that's hard for us. It's hard for someone like me because I'm a perfectionist and I judge myself so harshly. Like, no, no, not mercy, judgment. And some people are so, are, are so intrigued by the judgment of God. Like, God is the judge, and they think that's his biggest character, his biggest reputation, his most active thing is he's the judge. And of course God's the judge. And of course he has a right to judge because he created this whole thing, including us. But his heart overflows with mercy. And when God calls you to live out a life that's pleasing to Christ, it is not because he's going to judge you. It is because he overflows with mercy towards you. I urge you, not by the judgment of God, I urge you by the mercies of God. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the merciful for they will receive mercy. Why? Because that's the character of your Father in heaven. That's why James said in James chapter 2, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. You might want to write that one down. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's an amazing gift that God pours out to us. God, God's heart overflows with mercy. And if, and if the heart of God overflows to mercy, then it calls us to something. What does it call us to? Hey, I, know, I got an idea. Let's do interactive. When I ask you a question that calls for an answer, like, what is it, if, if the heart of God overflows with mercy toward us, what does that call us to? Be merciful. To whom? others let's before we get there how about here see this is a step that we don't all, we don't always take i'm a perfectionist you know this if you've been hanging around for a while you know i'm a perfectionist you know that i think it's a, a very challenging thing to get over like most of our gripping sins are and i understand how hurtful that it is to others and how hurtful it is to myself but i'm a perfectionist and one of the hardest things i find to do is to give mercy to me the heart of god overflows with mercy towards you psychologists call this calling self-compassion if god's heart overflows with mercy towards you then it's a spiritual decision to learn to give mercy to yourself. And then when you give mercy to yourself, of course, let it overflow to others. Give mercy to others. Let mercy be the character of your life. Because it's the character of God's life. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A well-crafted life understands that God is a God of mercy. Now, we talk about these five crafts. Here's the, I don't know if we've listed them yet today. Here's the five crafts in a well-crafted life. Scripture, prayer, generosity, connection, and service. Five things. 
And we believe as you, as you engage those five things, you become shaped in the image of Christ. You become shaped like Christ. All those things shaped and influenced his life. And those things, when they shape and influence our life, we will become more like Christ. And so we said last week, if you weren't with us, we put tables up on the front with a, some cards and a, a rubber stamp with each of those words. And we said, go to the table and pick the word that describes the craft that you want to focus on in your life this year. And so I chose the craft of prayer because I want to engage my father more intimately, more faithfully this year in prayer. And some of you chose the craft of scripture and some of you chose the craft of generosity and some chose the craft of connection with others and some chose the craft of service. And every one of those crafts engages with the will of God in this spiritual area where we begin to understand that God is full of mercy. But that's not the only way we engage God's will. A well-crafted life, a person who lives a well-crafted life engages with God's will spiritually to say God overflows with mercy. But number two, a well-crafted life engages God's will physically. Here's an interesting statement. He says, I, I, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's great mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Okay, that's weird. Can I just say that's weird? We're not, used to, we're not used to physical sacrifices these days. When Jesus died on a cross, it was not very much time after that, then God did away with all the sacrifices in Israel. All the animal sacrifices, the bulls, the goats, the sheep, all that stuff, they stopped that. Why? Because Christ already offered the ultimate sacrifice for all of us. And now Paul comes along and he goes, I want you to offer your bodies as a sacrifice. We go, we're not into that physical sacrifice thing. We thought Jesus did all that already. Well, to offer, some, to, to offer your body as a sacrifice, offer just means to make something available. When you offer your body as a sacrifice to God, you make your body available. So you take our crafts that we're working through and you go, okay, one of the crafts you might have chosen is service. When you choose to serve somebody else, you make your body available to make something happen. One of my wife's delights in her life and in the church life is to be able to stand out at the coffee bar out front in the lobby and serve coffee to you when you come in. And I, I, I know why she likes it. It's fun, you know. Nothing makes people happier than coffee. You know, so, she, so sometimes I like to go out and stand out there with her, you know, and I'll serve coffee to people too. And sometimes you'll come in, some of you will come in, you're like, wow, you're serving coffee today. You got demoted. I'm like, are you kidding? This is like the best job in the world. My wife loves to stand out there and give coffee, probably because she knows if she gives you coffee before you come in, you'll be nice to me when you're in here. Maybe that's how it works. I don't know, but there's just something about, she has to offer her body to be able to make that happen. She has to be, make her body available to be able to serve you coffee. That's all serving is, to make your body available to somebody else so that they can do something for you. When our, when our leaders work in Kids Fest next door, and across the hallway here, when they, when they work in Kids Fest, they're, they're serving, they're offering their body. They can't, they can't mail it in. Hey, I'm going to serve at Kids Fest this month. I, I'll, I'll just call in because my body's not available to get down to church this week. That's not how it works. That's not how service works. It's a, it's a physical engagement with the will of God in your life. That's how that craft of service works. Or some of you, you pick the craft of, con, of connection. You go, I, I got to get better connected to the church. I got to get better connected to my church family this year. I got to make some friendships this year. I got to get connected. 
Well, we have all kinds of ways you can be connected these days virtually. You don't even have to have skin to get connected on Facebook. Who knows if you do or not. But real connection comes with touch. Real connection comes physically. Now, I'm not saying Facebook is bad at all. I have a lot of friends on Facebook. I love being able to know what's going on in people's lives quickly like that. It's beautiful. But if that's my only connection, I'm not really connected. It's physical. There's a physical aspect of living a well-crafted life. Prayer is the craft that I'm focusing on this year. It's physical. I, I, I hear people that talk about, they, they pray when they run. And that's cool, you know. Or I talk about people who pray when they drive. And I've seen some of you drive. I pray when you drive. No, I'm just kidding. I, you know, you, you can pray when I drive, right? Uh, but when I pray, I don't always do this because there's a lot of different ways to pray. But when I pray, sometimes I just like to get on my knees at my chair in my office and pray on my knees. I want to make my body available to talk to God. Because it changes me when I do. And it builds into my life this well-crafted nature of becoming like Jesus. A well-crafted life engages God's will spiritually and physically. And then not just physically, but also emotionally. I skipped something there. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. That's weird. What was the first thing that happened to an animal when they were going to sacrifice it on the altar in Israel? First thing. It died. That, sorry, in the family room that was a little graphic for your children, but they, it died. They took its life and then everything else happened. So now Paul comes along and he goes, I want you to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. When I was in high school, our youth pastor used to, he loved this verse and he would always tell us as high school students, who are trying to follow Jesus, he goes, you know, the problem with a, you know the problem with a living sacrifice, don't you? Like, no, tell us what, you know, what's the problem? Problem is a living sacrifice tends to crawl off the altar. Yeah, here comes the knife, get out of here. Here comes the hard spot, get out of here. A living sacrifice has a problem. It owns a will. If my life is a living sacrifice, it owns a will. If my life is a living sacrifice, it has emotions like fear, like hurt, like anger. And if I'm going to live a well-crafted life, if I'm going to follow Jesus into this well-crafted life, I have to engage God's will emotionally. If you have a relationship with God that is devoid of emotion... You don't really have a connection with God. He is a being with a personality. He feels joy. He feels sorrow. And so do you. And you only engage in a well-crafted life when you engage God emotionally. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be a weeping wreck every day of your life. A lot of emotions. Some of them are joy. Some of them are happiness. Some of those are thrill. There's a lot of different emotions in our lives. And a well-crafted life engages all of those emotions as we offer ourselves as a sacrifice to God. Some of you, your craft for the year is Scripture. You read through the Scriptures, and sometimes when you read the Scriptures, it's, a, it's an ancient document, so it's not written exactly how we would write it today. So there's some interpretation that has to go into this 
process. But you go into the Psalms and you start reading the Psalms and sometimes you, you, if you pay attention to that, you'll think that the psalm writer was completely unhinged. I mean, like, David, what's the matter? Where are you going with this? What's your problem? But he's so much willing to pour out his emotions in the songs that he would write. Why? Because his relationship with God was emotional. It wasn't just spiritual. It wasn't just physical. It was also emotional. Well-crafted life engages God's will spiritually and physically and emotionally and fourthly, mentally. Verse 2 says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. You know the world wants to shape you. Every commercial you see is somebody in this world trying to shape you. Every athlete who makes an endorsement of a product is someone who's trying to shape you. Someone who writes an article or an editorial is trying to shape you. Every song you hear, every song you sing is trying to shape you. Paul says, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. One translation says it this way, do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. I'm like, yeah, that's, I don't want to do that. I don't want to be squeezed into anybody else's mold. Anybody make pasta here? Some of your pasta makers? Now, I might get this wrong because I'm not a cook. I can boil water on the second try. So, yeah, I'm not really good at this stuff. But so I think pasta, what the deal with pasta is so you, you make up some dough, Yes? Yeah, you make up a ball of dough, and then you stick it in the hopper of a pasta deal. That's, the, that's not the technical word, but that's kind of how it works, right? So you put it in there, and then I don't, somehow, somehow a process happens, and after a while it's squeezed out the other end, and it comes out spaghetti. It's the coolest thing. Is that how it works? Yeah, okay, well, two people think that's how it works. And they're not Italian, so I don't know how that's going to go. Let me put it in other terms that I'm trying to understand. I have this grandson. I'm not going to, I won't, no, I don't have a picture of him today. I know you want one, but I'm not going to give you one today. But he's going to grow up, you know, he's six months old now. He's starting to grow up. Pretty soon he's going to be crawling around, and pretty soon we're going to have Play-Doh in the house. Haven't had Play-Doh in the house for a long time. We're going to have Play-Doh in the house. And someday my grandson and I are going to take that Play-Doh, and we're going to get it in our hands, and we're going to squeeze it. And it's going to ooze out of our fingers. Because we squeezed it. And then I'm going to say, I'm going to say to him someday, hey, Remington, let's get a hype, let's get a, let's get a Play-Doh hypodermic. You know those, like these? Let's squeeze it through the needle and see what happens. And it'll come out changed. It'll come out different. Why? Because something squeezed it from the outside. You understand that? That's what sin wants to do to your life. That's what the evil one wants to do to your life. That's what the world's system wants to do to your life. It wants to squeeze you into its mold so that you look like it, you think like it, you act like it. And Paul says, don't let the world squeeze you into its own mold. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world. Rather, be transformed. That's a word that means to be changed from the inside out. 
means the Spirit of God gets a hold of your life and He changes you from the inside out. And you are transformed. Now you ought to, you ought to recognize that word, right? You've been at Lakeside very long, you know the word transform? It's our mission. It's what we're all about. It's the verb of our mission. We're on a mission to transform as many people as possible into passionate and productive followers of Jesus. That's transformed from the inside out. That's what he calls us to. How do, you, how do you do that? How do you get there? How do you, how do you not be squeezed by the world and how do you get to the place where God transforms you from the inside out? Here's the mental side of engaging with God's will. He says, I want you to do this by the renewing of your mind. You're transformed in your spirit, in your life, by the renewing of your mind. An election cycle is a beautiful time to practice renewal of your thinking, renewal of your mind. The word mind, is, it's a word that just means way of thinking. You need to renew your way of thinking, which means you have to watch what you watch. You have to watch what you read. You have to watch what you hear. I don't know if it's possible to watch what you hear, but you have to. Why? Because all the things you read and see and watch and hear are trying to squeeze you from the outside in. And he calls us to be transformed and renewed in our thinking from the inside out. The five crafts are really useful for this. The craft of Scripture means I'm going to put Scripture into my heart. I'm going to put Scripture into my mind so that, so that it shapes me and changes me, transforms me from the inside out. Some of you chose the craft of Scripture this year. You go, I'm, I'm going I'm to choose the craft of Scripture. I want to focus on that. I'm like, right on. And I'll tell you, if you're going to choose the craft of Scripture, try memorizing some of it. And you go, oh, I'm, I'm not good at memorizing. I'm just going to read it. I'm not good at memorizing I'm like, let me, just, let me help you with that. Take James 2.13. Not the whole verse, just the second half, like the second sentence of that verse. I already gave it to you once today. And you could take this, and before the, and before the giant's first pitch today, uh, never mind, I got distracted by the giants. Before the first pitch of the day, you could memorize this sentence from Scripture. Because it's only four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James 2.13. If you're trying to renew your mind, what a great place to start with the knowledge of who God is. And what if you just learned those four words and you began to put Scripture right in here and then right in here and you, just, and, and you only knew four words of Scripture. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That would transform you from the inside out. Generosity can transform you from the inside out. Generosity changes our thinking so that we change our behavior toward others, so that we come to others with an open hand to give what God has placed in it. When you open your hand, you change your thinking. When you open your hand, you change your heart. Because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. When you engage with God's will, spiritually and physically and emotionally and mentally, you begin to value those things that God values. You begin to test and approve what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. 
And that's a good beginning on a well-crafted life. Jesus, I pray for us today for these things. Thank you that you lived a well-crafted life for us. Lord, you lived a life that was so beautiful, so holy, so pure, that you could actually give it up on behalf of others like us. Thank you for that. Lord, I pray for us today with my friends here in this room, my friends in the family room. I pray for every one of us that we would be looking at these crafts that you've laid into our lives to help us follow you. And I pray that you would take those and shape us through them, whatever it is. Jesus, so that we become like you. That's what we want. That's what our world needs. That's what our family needs is for us to become like you. Jesus, lead us in the process and be honored through us. Amen.